0: We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode.
1: Hello and welcome to a curated episode of the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I've cut some key learnings from a few episodes of our past guests, ones that stand out as lessons learned, key points, and critical experiences to remember. Today we'll hear from three different leaders: CRO Carlos Stellatori, De CRO Dennis Leandre of Procore, and COO Mark Thurman of Tenable. But before we hear from Carlos, Dennis, and Mark, we've got some exciting news. Starting in September, we will publish two episodes per week. We'll still release interviews every Thursday, but we're adding a shorter segment show on Sunday nights centered on best sales practices, basically focusing on things for you to keep in mind as you start your work week. So check them out starting next month. And here's Carlos Del three-time CRO, with a story about a very common mistake that many first-line sales managers make once they've been promoted from account executive to sales leader. They're trying to be super salesperson by selling all the deals for their sales reps
0: my first time as a as a manager was at was at parametric technology and um my boss was uh was this guy John True who you know and i was very impressed with john true i was i was frankly i was i was intimidated by him he's so smart and he was just he was just one of those guys that was always thinking 10 moves ahead of everybody else and so uh <clears throat> and he wasn't particularly Effusive, so I didn't really know if he thought I was doing a good job or not a good job, and so uh, he'd been my manager for about ninety days. And he pulls me into his office one day, and he says, "Carlos, um, you interested to know how I think you're doing?" And like my knees are probably shaking under the table. Yes, yes, John, I am. And uh, and he gets up to the whiteboard and he grabs a marker and he draws a star on the mark on the whiteboard. I said, oh, this is good. This is good. He says, yeah, look, you start the week in Dallas and then you go to Lubbock and then you go to El Paso and then you go to somewhere else and somewhere else. And and, and so the reason you're doing that is because you're doing all the meetings for the rep. You're doing the job. And I didn't pay you to come in and be a rep. I'm paying you to be a manager. So you either become a manager or I'll make you a rep. Any questions? No, John, no questions. It was a five minute meeting and I remember it well. And it was such a good, such a good lesson. And it was, I think it's a, a, it's a mistake that a lot of first time managers make, which is they're good at doing the job of the rep. And so they just go in and and do it over and over and over. And I was running myself ragged and the reps were just basically, you know, letting me do their job for them. And, uh, and, and of course, it doesn't scale. So that was an important lesson that, <clears throat> as a manager, your job is to make the sales reps self-sufficient. And so if there's a problem in a deal, even if it takes twice as long or the problem gets solved half as well, you're better off solving it through the reps so that you build that skill and build that muscle. And that was that was the lesson that John was trying to teach me. And it was a really good one. Yeah, you see that a lot. Where like, just get promoted, think they have to like prove themselves, so they have
1: to prove themselves to the team that they're super sales reps, and that's why they got promoted. When in reality, like you said, when they back up and they get separate themselves from their ego and their insecurities, they can understand that the only way I'm going to get anywhere is if I can make my team really, really well at what I I've learned to do. So
0: yeah, great. That's a really good point, John. If I'm honest that was going on too. <clears throat> Scott Armstrong had done a fantastic job with this region or this district before me, and he got promoted. And like several of the reps had done a lot more revenue than I had done as a rep. And so I absolutely wanted to prove myself and I was probably a little bit insecure.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, that's, but I think <clears throat> it's really normal. I don't know that that's just Carlos della Torre coming up through the ranks. I think that's, that's what happens to lots of people, right? And because no one's truly sat them down like John Trude did, sat you down. Why are you really a leader? What are you really supposed to be doing? And it's really about developing your people, right? Carlos Delatori discusses a powerful lesson that any CRO needs to understand. There may come a time in your startup company when it's time to scale the sales force very quickly. And when a company starts to scale quickly, growing at 100% a year, every year, The booking number becomes very large. It becomes imperative that the CRO is focused on a realistic assessment of their people, especially their leaders, to understand who's truly ready for promotion to the next level and who is not ready to move to the next level. You might ask, well, why is it so critical to focus on the readiness of the current leaders and potential leaders? Because without the requisite leaders next year, you can't hire the amount of ex- account executives required to make the future bookings number
0: at MongoDB. So the business was doing really well, and the team was growing. Everything was up and to the right from an outsider's perspective, <clears throat> but the reality is, I had hired um, I had hired a lot of great first line managers and some great second line managers. <clears throat> I had not hired really senior leaders. Who were capable of scaling. And it was, it was, it was okay at that moment. But based on the way the team was growing, six, nine months later, it was going to be a problem. I was going to not have the leadership capacity, the senior leadership capacity that I needed in place. And, um, and I let that, and I let that get, get ahead of me because. You know, for a senior, for a really strong senior leader, it could easily take six months to find them and another three months to ramp them. And so, if I need that person six or nine months from now, um, and I'm not recruiting and I don't have a pipeline, I'm already very, very late. And so that was that was a problem that uh, that I got into, and it and and it and it uh, it caused us to be. There was one year at MongoDB where by Q4. We were we were probably 10 heads behind plan, maybe 12 AEs behind plan. And it was one of those Q4s where we had a few big deals and we did all kinds of heroics and just like everybody was working like dogs. And we, we did some of these big deals and we just made the number and the reality is it should have been a celebration we should have done 120% of the number and we needed these heroics to just get over the finish line and uh, and that was because i was late on the leadership 6 months 6 months prior
1: right so let's dive into that a little bit cuz you see that problem a lot too so what what you're really referring to here if i can make an assumption is that there's different as a company starts to scale some people can actually as leaders, can actually adapt to the new environment and what they what demands the scaling puts on them and their teams, and others can't. and in in a lot of cases, it's only it's a minority that actually can make those moves consistently year after year as a company' scaling one hundred percent a year. And what you saw was, ah. You know, maybe I waited too long to start to, you know, go outside and look for new leaders because I can already see that some of the leaders that I have aren't making the jump. They're not meeting the demands, you know, that this new business environment is putting on them with respect to scaling. Is that is that what you're referring
0: to? Yeah. Yeah. The only thing. Yeah. One hundred percent. The only thing I would add to that is <clears throat> I think a lot of people um develop in spurts or they develop at an irregular pace. And so sometimes people just need to sit in a role for a while to mature, to connect the dots. And then other times you can see somebody getting promoted like once a year. It's happened in my own career. You know, there've been periods, four or five years where I got promoted, like at PTC, I was getting promoted once a year. And I kind of did okay. And then there were other times where I just needed to really be in a role for two or three years for the lessons, <clears throat> for the skills required for that role to really sink in. And so, yeah, when the organization is growing uh, really fast, it's unlikely that people are just going to be able to keep stepping up into the next role. And uh, and so that that's what I missed at, at MongoDB at that period. Yeah,
1: but, you know... You- that's where you also need to to put pressure on your leaders to understand where their leaders are like if you're a third line person or fourth line you know what are your third line and second line people doing with the first line and the second line what are they doing to develop those people because like you said that's part of making the judgment call on on people is that some people learn and adapt at different levels than, and and speeds than other people do so as a leader, you can't just say, oh, this guy's never going to, or girl's never going to make the jump. The reality is maybe they will make the jump and maybe they'll even be more successful than people that have already made the jump. It's just that it takes them a little bit longer to make that jump. That's right. And the thing that I found that I've always had to look for is I had to see some sort of tangible change in their behaviors, in their leadership to know that eventually they're going to get there. If I can't, Consistently see these little changes, measurable changes. Then I really am thinking, I don't know if they're ever going
0: to make it. Yeah. You know, another thing that related to this that was <clears throat> that was a challenge for me at MongoDB is that was the first time that I was I was in the head of sales role scaling a large org and so i didn't have perspective for how complicated things were about to get and so there were phenomenal leaders and i had seen those leaders like deliver some some of them had you know i'd worked with in the past and i had seen where hey every challenge they've ever faced they rose to the challenge and i didn't have the perspective for how much more complicated things were going to get and how quickly i think at, at trip actions i had the benefit of having scaled MongoDB, and so I, I, I had a better I had a better sense for whether people were going to be able to take that next step or whether they needed to to sit tight in in their current role for a little while.
1: What Carlos didn't specifically state, but he did have to put in place was two critical items. First, a streamlined recruiting process from candidate identification to interview process to offer letter, and onboarding in order to recruit leaders and account executives and get those candidates quickly through the process. And second, a dashboard to monitor key recruiting process metrics at each and every stage of the process on a weekly basis. Here's an important segment for any leader. Carlos Del discusses one of his biggest learning experiences as a leader, a lesson many, If not, most of us had to learn the hard way, taking care of you, taking care of yourself by setting priorities and through effective time management. I'm very thankful that Carlos was willing to discuss this sensitive topic because I know so many leaders that have experienced what Carlos describes. So let's talk about what's the biggest lesson you had to learn about you as you now look back in your career and all the different things that you've experienced and all the different things you had to learn. It's the biggest thing that Carlos had to learn yeah. about Carlos.
0: You know, um, to, yeah, to make it personal, one one of the big things I learned is, <clears throat> I don't know if you've heard the saying, um, put your own oxygen mask on first. Yeah. Um, I learned the importance of taking care of myself And if I don't take care of myself, I can't take care of anything or anyone around me. And so, um, you know, when things got hard, I just felt like, oh, I just need to work a little harder. I need to sleep a little less. I need to like take a call in the car in the morning on the way. And what I ended up doing was just like snipping away at um, time with my family and sleep and just time to reflect. And um, I didn't realize it at the time, but um, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I can. If I don't get, if I'm not resting and eating well and feeling like I'm, I'm doing what I need to do with my family, then, uh, you know, I'm not as patient. My temper, um, you know, can flare up. Uh, my decision making isn't as good. I'm not as creative. And uh, and so I had to learn the importance of like getting my eight hours, eating well, getting at least a little bit of exercise in there, so that I can actually do operate at my best.
2: I
1: think again another amazing lesson that I think a lot of leaders you know face, and I tell a lot of them now when I'm I I see them or talk to them, and I can tell they're kind of getting close to burning out. I say, look, if you don't take care of you. No one else will. That's number one. And number two, your team is counting on you. They're counting on you to make really good decisions. So you have to take care of yourself so you can make really good decisions for, for your entire team. So yeah. important.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, there's like a paradox in there, because if you have that mentality, which I do, and I know you do, too, that you want to take care of your team, you want to be there for your team. And sometimes the way to do that is to tell them, no, like they there, there will be an infinite amount of demands on your time, an infinite number of things you could do. And so it takes a little bit of like discipline and maturity to just say, no, I got to go take care of me, whether that means going for a long walk or just, you know, going to bed at whatever time you need to go to bed.
1: But it's also now what you what you also are referring to is time. So when you do, what starts to happen as a leader is you start to realize, okay, I am working 16 hours a day, 18 hours a day. There is no more time. That's so it. I have to start to be able to manage the people around me too and the demands that they're putting on me. And what's really important here? What's not important? Do they really all need an hour on my schedule or can it be done in 15 minutes? Yeah. Can it be done with a quick email? Why do I have to talk to them for an hour? You know, So you can... It then forces you to start to prioritize, forces you to start to manage your time better and start to manage the people around you. Otherwise, like you said, there's just not enough time in the day. And I think when you start to (laughs) see it is when I saw it is when I was working 16, 18 hours a day and I'd come in the next day and I'd still have stuff from the day before my to-do list that I never got done. And I was like, and then it would go to the next day and the next day. And I think, this this is not
0: sustainable. Something has to change, right? Well, what worked for me <clears throat> and made this a little better um, is I just put everything in my calendar, including like when I go to bed, when I have dinner with my family, when I'm you know riding the peloton in the morning, when I'm going to spend recruiting. I've got three hours for recruiting and two hours for PG and this and that <clears throat> and. You know, my my assistant knew that she could move those blocks around, but she also knew that she could not delete them. And so if there's a meeting coming in and it doesn't fit, she would bring it to me and say, you know, this is what do I do? Do I cut into PG or do we not do this meeting? Um, That was the only way that it worked, because otherwise things just come in and they they'll dominate your calendar.
1: Oh, yeah. I can remember asking one of my assistants. Now, when I looked at my schedule in the morning, now, when do I get to go to the bathroom? Is that between eleven fifty nine zero zero and 1200.00? <laughs> like, there's, there's no time to even get up from the desk, you know? Right. So, yeah. What do you think you had the biggest thing you learned about other
0: people? The Buddhists have a saying that I like that says that um, the universe exists in a grain of sand. And what they mean by that is that. By examining any one simple thing down to its most fundamental characteristics, you can understand everything about the universe. And um, I think that's true of people. And um, if, if someone, if someone shows some, You know, it can be positive or negative. If someone shows some maybe lack of integrity, willing to cut corners, even if it's on something small, um, I've learned to pay a lot of attention to that. If someone shows, uh, you know, real generosity or kindness or a um, willingness to sacrifice themselves for the good of a deal or the company, even if it's on something small, it's, it, you could extrapolate that. And so I really, um, I really pay attention to the little things because they tell you the whole story about people. Oh, that's really good, Carlos. It's
1: really good. And up next is Dennis Leandre, former CRO of Procore and I, where we discuss making decisions as a leader, balancing emotions, logic, data, and intuition. It's interesting. Like you talked about human psychology. I think that. That's something that uh, I've always, you know, thought a lot about. And then also for me, what worked a lot was intuition, right? You have to learn whether you're selling to people or you're managing people and all the different scenarios that come up. You have to learn, like you said, human behavior, human psychology, but you also have to put your intuition to work. It can't always just be that you're making decisions only off of data. (laughs) You have to feel like what's really going on here. What are they trying to do? What's... What are they trying to drive? Is there any secondary, you know, factor that's playing into this thing? You know, before you make a decision, and and through that, I learned also that I didn't have to make decisions right now. So when somebody came into my office and said, "Hey, here's the situation. What do you want to do?" Sometimes I say, "I I don't know." I say, "Well, what do you mean you don't know? You got to make a decision." I said, "I got to make a decision, but I don't have to make a decision right now. Why? Well, when are you going to make a decision?" I don't know. It could be on a run. could be in the shower. It could be driving to work. And then all of a sudden, my intuition clicks in. And that kind of resonated with what my brain thought. And I thought, okay, that's it. That's the answer. Um, That, that became a big factor for me. See. What about some skills you had to develop? And, you know, this doesn't have to be the first line manager role. Just think about any of the roles that you had. What is some, when you look back, what are some of the, One or two top skills you thought, geez, I really had to learn that. Uh, You know, let
3: me if I could come back on skills, because I think that point you just made there is actually worth amplifying. And it was one I struggled a lot with. So I actually think how you make decisions is a really important skill. And I did. I was finding I was constantly off balance. Right. So I was either making too much of an emotional decision too quickly when I didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Or I was over analyzing and it didn't make sense. And so I've come to find in my own journey on like decision making that one, just asking the question, like, do I have to decide this now? And will I get a better outcome if I decide it now? Um, was really, really powerful. And two, I found I make my best decisions when I balance emotion and logic and when I'm really, really honest with myself. Around, like, am I just going to make an emotional decision either way? And now I'm just looking for data to justify my emotional decision. And you know, if I make this decision, like, can I change course? What are the consequences of getting it wrong? Um, And so, I just, I think it's worth really emphasizing. You say, you know, in our interactions, what I found is you bring a level of simplicity and clarity to the situation. I'm like, John, you just said that. Do you know how hard that was for me, and how important of a skill making decisions. Yeah. Right. You could argue like the more senior you get, that's all you're doing, right? Is you're making decisions. And arguably you're making decisions on markets and people and you know, deals and those sorts of things.
1: So I, I apologize if I brought us back for a moment, but I, I No, it's great. It's great because that's what all these you know sales leaders have to do is they have to make decisions. And I think the other thing is you have to check in with yourself when you're making a decision, you know, just like telling people that. I'm not ready to make a decision yet because it just doesn't feel right. It's like my brain's not resonating with my gut or my intuition. At the same time, it could be like you've worked really hard. You got up at five in the morning. You were working out. You're running all over the place at seven thirty at night, and somebody comes in your office and asking you to make a decision, and you're tired. You know, maybe I don't have to. Do I have to make a decision right now? Because time is the only other element—is the decision and is the time element. So, how much time do I have to? to make this decision. And if I check in with myself, maybe I won't make the right decision right now because I'm really tired. And maybe I'm a little, as you said about yourself once in a while, I'm a little off balance. So maybe it could wait till the morning. In this segment, Dennis LeAndre discusses what he had to learn about recruiting, training his team, and building a culture of performance. So that's interesting, Dennis, you talked about you really had to learn about recruiting, training and development and um, and unfortunately, you know, terminating some people. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, the biggest lessons you had to learn in recruiting. Let's let's pick out each one of these.
3: Well, so I think in recruiting and again, you know. I was thinking last week in prepping for this podcast, I'm like, gosh, this message is going to be so underwhelming because McMahon has talked so many times about recruiting and recruiting the characteristics and attributes into the skills you need. And so my own journey, um, and by the way, I should say as a quick detour, I'm so glad this podcast exists, your book exists, because when I was trying to learn the McMahon way at Pentaho... It wasn't as well documented, but it was out there, right? And we had PTC guys at Pentaho and they were like, look, you got to recruit to attributes and characteristics, right? And let's figure out which ones are really going to be great for the company and be great for you. And Hey, there are like things people need to do to be successful in this role, whether it's, you know, build a business case, do account planning. So like you got to actually vet for those skills. And so my own journey in recruiting, I think was, was two really big things. was like, one, how do I keep drilling to that? Right. So, how do I look at the characteristics and attributes? And, you know, there are a handful that I've realized have really carried me through every role. Um, and I'd say they're looking for people that are really hungry. They're looking for people that are humble and curious. Um, and they're looking for folks that are, you know, really smart. Um, and there are others, right? Ownership. And, um, but those three, hungry, humble, smart. And then it was like, what are the skills? Right. And I was a little less probably than I should have been, truthfully, in a frontline management hiring reps role around, you know, the technical skill of knowing business intelligence and data integration, data analytics. If I had a do-over, I actually would have indexed a little bit more, but I was indexing very heavy on like, are these people who have either trained themselves or been trained and what is their potential aptitude? And so I think in recruiting, there was that was one really big thread for me, which was like, how do I hire to the characteristics and the skills? The other, um, which was painful, and you know, you've said this to me in more than one interaction. Um, look, you own it either way. So when it didn't land,
1: you either hired wrong Mm -hmm. or you managed wrong. And by the way, you don't get to do train and develop you couldn't train and develop, right? Or you couldn't lead. It's one of those three things. You either can't recruit, can't train and develop. Or you couldn't lead. So which one is it? Could you have to own it?
3: Well, and so that was the second part of my journey in recruiting was, look, I think you learn a lot from failure. And so, you know, for me to get better at recruiting, a lot of it was like, sure, let me understand the success. And what did I do there? And how do I keep doubling down on that? What were the ingredients in that successful hire? But truthfully, the ones where I was like, gosh, I brought this person aboard and they left a great job somewhere else. And like I failed them. Like what specifically? Because I think that where, you know, you can kind of give yourself an out. And I did this in my early days. I was like, well, it was both. You know, I hired wrong and I managed wrong. And like, you know, like these other things, they didn't go as well. I was like, no, no, no. Like which one was not And fine. Maybe it wasn't 100 percent of the situation. But if that's the story you're going to tell yourself, Dennis, then wait. It Was it 80 percent you hired wrong? And You hired because you were an early stage company and this was a big company person. And yes, they knew how to talk the talk in an interview about MedPIC. And you know, they seemed hungry, but they just weren't used to a place where comp plans change every you know six to 12 months, where the CRM is, you know, not quite tuned and it's very agile. So we're constantly changing. And so for me in recruiting, um, there were two things that I was like, I've got to get really, really good at this. One was like, you know, hiring to those attributes and characteristics and the skills and getting really good at doing that. And if you'd like, happy to click through kind of the next. No,
1: no, no. The only thing I want to say on that is uh, sometimes in these really fast growing companies like you've been in, you might hire right in 2023 and the person stays around in 2025, but 2025, it's a completely different company with completely different demands. And that person just didn't adapt. And then you have to make a change. So that's why a lot of times when you're recruiting and you're looking for characteristics, it's also the person that's coachable, not only coachable, but adaptable. Because if you're going to grow fast, those people are going to have to adapt with the ever-changing environment, changing messaging, changing product, changing competition, changing personas you call on. And if they can't adapt, maybe you hired good in 2023, but by 2025, they're gone because they're not changing. That That's a big one when you're in a really fast growing company.
3: I mean, I think it's so big that it's like, if, you know, in my own reflection on like where, in addition to being lucky, like what are the things I think I've tried to get really good at that have helped me in my career and learning and learning how to learn and learning how to deal with change has been one of the most essential skills. And we actually tried to institutionalize this at Procore, where when we were promoting folks. Yes, your numbers have to be there. That's table stakes. There's not even a conversation. And of course, we need business need as well, otherwise, you know, what are we doing here? But we actually started to instrument people's rate of learning. And, you know, we would look back over simplified on a quarterly plan and say, "Well, hey, here were the things you said were going to make you successful for this role or the next role, depending on where you were kind of positioned in the company. And how well did you learn those things? And how fast are you learning?" And I found the folks that like really scale with the company. I mean, they're learning 50, 100%. And I, I think it's hard to get to that
1: level of precision with yeah, metrics, right. But it's obvious they're learning exceptionally well. And I actually... How is it obvious? Tell, tell me how it was obvious. What were some of your markers to tell you that it was obvious?
3: Look, I think when someone really knows their stuff, they could teach it to someone else. Mm-hmm. And so part of it was like, can you develop other people yeah. on this skill? I like that. Um, I think that, you know, what I've come to find is um, sometimes the middle is hard to assess, but the extremities are actually not. So when you're like, gosh, like we talked about learning this thing, whether it was, you know, our company story and pitch and a great customer case study, um, or it was, you know, our own methodology or was our product, whatever. But we've talked about this three times now. And you still couldn't give me the basics, right? That's obvious. The opposite also became really obvious for us. And we really tried to set a culture of performance and excellence, which was like, I didn't even know you knew you needed to know that. Like you listen to the company all hands. You heard the CEO talk about this thing. You put the extra effort in. And now I'm learning from you and everyone else looks around. And they're like, that's the person that we all learn from. And so I think to your question, like one was like, can you teach it to someone else? Yeah, I Two was just, you know, look, the 50th percentile can be hard. Like, are they, you know, in quartile three or, you know, the bottom of quartile two that I found is a little harder to assess. Right. But someone shows up and it's clear they have the knowledge. They've done the processes to figure out how to do this thing. And they're just taking the shots, the skill over and over again. Those
1: people usually are pretty obvious and everyone in the company knows who they are. Now, here's a difficult subject that a lot of leaders have to learn. And Dennis Leandre talks a little bit about how you decide and how you do terminate someone from your sales force. But one of the things you talked about on the flip side of recruiting was that you had to terminate some people. So Mm -hmm. that's a scary moment for a lot of first time leaders. They've never they've hired people. Hey, that was pretty cool. I hired five or six sales reps. I hired a couple application engineers. Now, you know, Joe's not getting it done and I'm going to have to go talk to Joe and let Joe go. Like, what did you have to learn around, you know, termination? You know, I've debated,
3: um, and I'd actually love your reaction to this, but I think, and I'm not sure, but I think my own truth today is that firing well is even more important than hiring well. I'm not sure. And truthfully, I'm grateful that I don't have to make that a competing trade-off very often. Um, But you know, in, in, in letting someone go, I mean, I think for me, I found that how you treat people, especially in the hardest of moments, ultimately becomes who you are as a human. And you have to own it. And so, look, this is a lesson I got from you, right? And I got from people that you have mentored. It's like, it's on you. And so for me, like, I haven't had a lot of struggle with ownership. I think that's one of the things um, that I've been, you know, better at. Um, But I struggled a lot with the emotional aspect of those terminations. And I still do, to be honest, right? Of
1: course, you're a human being. And, you know, you've come to know this person really well. And letting them go, is a that's a big deal. But a lot of times they, they, they find they wind up understanding that they don't fit for whatever reason it is. Maybe you couldn't uncover it or you did uncover it. And you say, here's some things you're just not getting done. And, you know, you need to go. And then they go and magically they end up in the right spot and they land on their feet and they're highly successful in that organization that's at a different stage. Of scaling than your company is, and they do really well. And that's something that's nice to see. Like you actually felt like you were terminating them, which you were, and it was emotional. But then you see that they landed on their feet and you found out, Hey, you know, like I made the right decision at the end of the day for this person because they really weren't making it. You know, at this company, it might sound harsh, but. You know, if anybody's ever played sports, we all get to a certain point. We're not professional athletes. So we all got to a certain point where we started to realize like these people at this level are a lot better than I am. And maybe it's time for me to call it a day and I'll go land on my feet in some other sport. Right. So, there go. well,
3: look, I mean, I think to build on your say, uh, what you're saying, I mean, one thing I've learned is that if I've done all the stuff right, leading up to that moment, the termination's a lot easier. And frankly, most of the time they opt out themselves. Right. And yes. so like Before, we tried to make it really clear for folks, like it is all about results and results aren't just your number. It's how you get there. Right. Um, so you can't leave a trail of death and destruction. You've got to commit yourself to learning mastery, customer success. And in order to get those results, we looked at effort and we looked at learning. And that was on our performance reviews, Result, Effort, Learning. And what we basically said, you had a strategist, Chuck, I believe on the podcast, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, he was talking about how he's all about the activities, right? And if you do the activities, you get the outcome. And therefore, you know, you may want to instrument workers to to those activities. We didn't quite go that far. I mean, we did say, look, similar to the company, similar to me, like we want to be in the boat together. You're as good as your number. However, if you're putting in the work, the effort, doing the activities and you're learning and you're learning is purpose specific on the things we need you to know to progress the stage or to whatever challenges you're having, then you should be successful. And so when we were looking at these terminations, it started to get really clear, like, hey, is the effort there? If not, let's turn that dial. Hey, is the learning there? Like, we're here to support you. It doesn't mean we can teach you. Right. You've still got to have the hunger. You've still got to have the curiosity. you got to put in the work. And most of the time, folks kind of opted out. And that's a much better situation, right? When people say, hey, you know, this isn't working for me. I found another job. You know, the other thing I learned in terminations um, that was kind of, of the emotional ilk um, that was really painful for me when I was like, oh, oh, gosh, was I was, you know, I was really hard on myself. OK, I messed this up. I brought this person in. They're not successful. That's on me. And then I was spending so much time trying to help them to be successful. And what I didn't realize is like, what is the impact to the rest of my organization? When this seller isn't happy, they're not delivering their outcomes. They may not be doing right by the brand, right? Another McMahon mantra, you know, no breath better than bad breath, right? And so, you know, in that regard, you know, one thing that became really clear for me in Terminations that changed my kind of thinking
1: of it was what's like the shadow this person leaves? Yes, very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah, so that's you know, let's say you're a first line manager and you're struggling with getting rid of somebody. And let's say have, you have five people on a team. You don't think the other four people know that you're supposed to get rid of this person. So every day that goes by, that you are not essentially penalizing that person for non-performance, whatever that penalty might be, or you know asking that person to leave the company. The other four people are looking at you as a leader saying, what's the matter with him or her? Don't they see what's going on on this team? And then I always think that the longer that you let that go on, then the other four people that might have been performing at a super high level start to realize, well, why do I really have to work at a super high level when this other person is over here? They're not cutting it at all. And my manager is not doing a thing about it. So then the overall performance of the team starts to drop and you may not get it back. So that's why it's really your job as a leader to take care of those situations. And the sooner the better. Even though that's really difficult, because like you said, you you own it. So you struggle with it because of what we talked about before. Did I hire the right person? Did I not train and develop them? Did I not lead them? You know, what's where did I go wrong?
3: So those are things I learned painfully.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Here's Mark Thurman, the current COO at Tenable, sharing the four major lessons he learned early in his sales career. Simple communication, work ethic, becoming subject matter expert, and the importance of finding mentors. You know, some of our... Listeners that are you know in the sales rep ranks, what were some of the lessons you learned along the way that you know you'd share with others that are trying to make the same same moves up up the ladder? Yeah, no, no question. So, and there's been a lot of them, right? I, I think when I when I look back to those early days,
4: just kind of getting into sales and starting my career off, especially at PTC, right? There were some basic foundational kind of building blocks that just tried to expand upon as I've gone through my career. Right. The first one that I took and and learned a lot of lessons at PTC. The first one was about communication. Right. And I think I'll use, you know, both you individuals, but especially you, John McMahon, in regard to communicating and trying to be a communicator that simplifies messaging and strategy and execution. It was really one of the first things I've learned early in my career was. The leaders that could actually truly impact and simplify messaging, positioning, metrics, and strategy, they're the ones that actually drove the most productive teams. So, kind of early in my career, communication was a massive big part of the, kind of the foundation of, of building my, my career and the characters that I wanted to follow throughout my career. The second big one, which my dad used this term all the time, is hard work is the great equalizer. And I know it sounds corny, but it has stuck with me for my entire life. And it is truly proven both in athletics and in business that hard work is the, the great equalizer. I would see people early in my career at PTC that would literally do 7, 18 hours a day. They would study. They would get enabled. They would spend time with customers, with partners, with executives and mentors and learning. And I truly, there were many people that were far more intelligent than I was ever going to be. But I literally would come in there with this attitude about, I am going to outwork and out hustle every single one of these folks. And as I've grown in my career, that has stuck with me. But now it is one of the biggest things I look for from recruiting and building the next future leaders and the next sales managers and the next sales rep. That has been a lesson that, Started early in my childhood, but has absolutely stuck with me, you know, for my entire career, without a doubt.
1: Yeah, because we've all seen the people that we've even recruited that might have even aced their SATs. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, they just weren't, they weren't trying hard. They were just thinking they could skate by. And then to your point, the hard work, I don't even know if it was the equalizer, it would surpass. Yeah, uh, yeah. The intelligence levels that some people had just because you worked hard and were dedicated. You learn more, actually. Yep. No question. And, and the, the two other attributes that are, let's add on to that.
4: And it goes along that hard work theme is trying to become even if you didn't get into technology, if you weren't in computer science or you weren't in cyber or infrastructure is mm-hmm. really trying to improve yourself to become a subject matter expert. I think in today's selling environment, becoming an SME and really being able to explain your technology, being able to go deep on the technology, talking about those positive business outcomes and all the different things that we do around, you know, MedPick and Command of the Message. But I, also, I, I found that the, the, the folks that take that really serious in the beginning parts of their career with the enablement to training and becoming an SME, it truly allowed them to kind of be big differentiators. And then the last point is the mentors right? This is something that I I talk to a lot of the new hires is, and I was lucky enough in my career to, to find a few, but being able to find someone that's been there and done it at scale that can check their ego at the door and have very open and transparent conversations about what it takes to be successful, how you problem solve, how you deal with really complex emotional situations with employees and other leaders, you know, was started my PTC career and you know, something that I'm a massive believer in today. So those are kind of the four major kind of building blocks. And some of the lessons I learned early in the, the, the days of PTC.
1: When Mark Sermon is interviewing potential candidates, he's looking for the three H's, head, heart, and hard work. Listen as Mark describes.
4: When I look at recruiting, and again, we all kind of came up through the same methodologies and we all talk about recruiting and revenue and retention. So we all have the same acronyms, right? Um, but one of the things I do follow from a recruiting perspective, and I do three H's, right? It's called the head, the heart, and hard work ethic, right? So keep it really simple and basic. And when I recruit, I look for the head, which is obviously the intellect, the intelligence, right? Can they understand the technology? Can they articulate what is going on in a customer environment? And do they really have the intelligence level to be successful selling really complex software. So that's the first thing. And there's a bunch of questions I use to kind of test that. The second thing is the heart, right? And this comes into the passion, the enthusiasm, the energy level, right? The kind of compete that they are going to do everything humanly possible to win. And they're going to be passionate and enthusiastic on every step of the process, right? I don't want anyone that is low energy, that is negative you know, that is full of drama. I want those folks out of my companies, out of my life. There's no room for that to be running in a successful organization. You can't have that, right? So you got the head, the heart. And the last one is what I talked about. And I always come back to this. My kids are so sick of it, but it's the hard work. It is the work ethic in the simple, you know, being able to get an understanding of where people came from, their backgrounds, their struggles in life. And I literally asked this interview question. I said, when have you been either outsmarted Or you have a person you're competing with in a sport, right? So athletically, they were superior, but you outwork them. Walk me through that. And when I hear folks that can't even articulate how and where that happened, I'm like, have they really been through the struggle? You know, to use a a, a cap term, have they been through the glass? Like, have they been through a really tough time where they've been able to outwork and out hustle either, you know, their peers or their competition?
1: And so those are the three attributes, In this segment, Mark Thurman discusses removing friction for his team since the main job of a CRO is to increase the productivity of the sales team. And here, John Kaplan probes Mark to describe what he means by removing friction and why that's so important for a leader.
2: Let me talk about you for a second. One of the things I really love about you is like when, when my company has worked with you, you were always the barometer. And because it reported up to you, you always had this barometer of simplifying and removing obstacles for your team. And I actually think you call it removing the friction. You didn't want to build up any cholesterol for the organization. And it was yeah. on you to make sure, not somebody else's interpretation. You were responsible for removing the friction. Could you talk a little bit about your sure. what you mean by that? Removing the friction.
4: Yeah, and I mean, literally, it's it's funny. i just coming out of some QBRs here in, in, in Maryland, and just down in Argentina and Brazil last week, visiting customers and doing a bunch of keynote presentations. And when I get my team together and I get the partner community together. The first thing I I ask, I literally, I say, what friction is in the system that I can help solve? And then I decompose that. I say, okay, literally, what is slowing you down Monday through Friday that is preventing you from talking to your customers and your partners and driving higher levels of productivity? Then I break it down to what is happening in sales ops Right? What is happening in the partner ecosystem? What is happening in the messaging and positioning of the technology? What is happening on the product side? So this is one of the areas that I, I do tend to spend a lot of time in the weeds. I do tend to spend a lot of time in the details because when you're removing friction you know, for a, a thousand person plus organization, if you're not living it every day, if you don't understand it, if you don't understand how maybe... You know, you have 15 different fields in Salesforce that don't need to be clicked, and it's causing every seller 30 minutes. I can't go to my Salesforce administrator and say, "Hey, I want those those, those windows locked out. I don't want to be able to have that option. I want to be able to, instead of having 40 different options in Salesforce, I want fourteen. I want my sellers in front of customers and in front of partners. How do you do that? And so I do spend a huge amount of time, and it is, you know, when I go into a QBR and as we're digging into the business, My, my tagline is what friction is out there and then how can I solve it? And I think that's, you know, again, lessons I've learned through different mentors and different leaders, you know, they're the folks taking action and they're the folks that are improving productivity and improving, you know, the, the experience at the company, you know, for the sellers.
1: Here's a great learning for anyone in sales leadership, command and control leadership versus influential leadership. Mark gives us insight into the differences he sees in these two different leadership styles. And he shares how and why influential leadership is more powerful than command and control leadership. You've talked about, you know, command and control leadership versus what you call influential leadership. Can you explain what you mean by that and why that's so important to you? Definitely. And again, this, I'll go back to Joe
4: Tucci. Um, This was one of the aha moments during our mentoring sessions, where it was never, ever explained to me the way Joe put it. And again, EMC was a massive, you know, $40, $50 billion company. We acquired 100 companies in a nine-year period. So very complex reporting structures and BUs. And, you know, Joe would talk about different leadership styles. And he sat down with me one day, and I was getting frustrated because we had acquired a few companies at RSA. And I wanted those to report directly into me day one. And I wanted to be able to do command and control, meaning I'm the general. Here's what you need to do. A, B, C, and D. And if you don't do it, there's going to be ramifications. <laughs> right. And Joe sat him down. He's kind of like, how do I put it? He's kind of like, take it easy, Gunsmoke. <laughs> relax a little bit. Yeah. He take said, a breath. Exactly. <laughs> take a deep breath. Just relax. Look on you the know, top of the perch and look down and relax. And he said, here's the deal." <laughs> He said, Command and control leadership is the most easy leadership there is. He said, When you're like the military, you're on a sports team, and there's one general, there's one head coach, it's very easy to lead that team, lead that organization, because you lay out the rules and they have to follow them. If they don't, there's repercussions. And he said, The biggest evolution that Joe Tucci had in his career and then the leaders around him was developing this command and control leadership style, meaning as you progress in an organization, as you move up in, in large organizations, You are not going to control all the functions. You are not going to have all of the um, opportunity to do command and control for all these different BUs. You have to influence. You have to lead by influencing other folks. And that's hard, right? Like if they don't report to you, but you need to get something out of them. An example is if you're a CRO and marketing doesn't report into you and there's a CMO, you have to be able to influence that CMO on how you want to go drive pipeline, on how you want to manage, you know, SQLs and MQLs, on how you want to manage the positioning. You can't go in there and say, you do A, B, C, and D as you report to me. You have to say, hey, man, we are in this together, right? We are one team, one fight. Here are the things that we think we need from a go-to-market we need marketing to help support us in these three areas. What do you think? Do you agree? Do you buy it? And being able to build on that was truly eye-opening. And a big part of my career was managing acquisitions and managing a bunch of companies that we acquired. And I could never use command and control. And so when Joe sat down and walked me through that, and then he used an example of one of the folks that he was mentoring, a guy named David Goulden, who ended up becoming CEO of EMC, unbelievably intelligent, super smart guy. And he said, he's the perfect example. And he was a CFO. He was a CRO. He managed product. He had all these different functions that reported into Dave at one point. But Joe pointed out Dave Gould saying he is a master at command and control. Right, Orgs don't report into him, but he manages them, he leads them, and he gets the outcome he needs by influential leadership. And so that's something that, that I think about constantly as we're acquiring companies and we're dealing with partners and I'm dealing with people that don't directly report to me. Super important muscle that up and coming leaders need to develop.
1: Yeah. You know, I've, I've called it positional power versus persuasive power, you know, positional power, someone working for you, they're going to do what you tell them to do in exchange mm-hmm. for money or some sense of reward and not to get punished. Yep. But when you explain things more from our persuasive power you know, and you kind of get them to understand what's in it for them to do what you need them to do. Yep, nope, absolutely. That's a lot more powerful and that's a lot more lasting and it changes the relationship that you have with people. So no people don't that. always respond to positional power or what you called, you know, command and control leadership.
2: Nope. What nope. we've also talked about with a number of leaders uh, since starting this podcast is in in order to do what you just explained, John, and what you're talking about, Mark, is you it, it's you have to begin with the why. So everybody's been talking about beginning with the why and then the what and the how are, you know, just kind of they just kind of fall in place. But yeah. have you found the same thing, Mark, in, yeah. in order to do what you're talking about doing, you have to be really good at, at, at explaining the why to people. Absolutely. get them no. emotionally connected to the why.
4: No question about it. And I'll give you a great example. Right. So, you know, we have acquired a bunch of companies as i stated here at Tenable um, in the time period I've been here. And so when we acquire a new company, you know, they're very much measured on a plan of record, meaning they've got to do a certain amount of bookings and sales and revenue and new customers. And so when I sit down with them and, and, you know, they're a CEO, they might still be reporting not into me as CEO, or they still might be reporting into our CEO, a meet your on. But I'll sit down and talk to them and say, Hey, listen, if we want to be able to be successful, we want to crush your plan of record, right? Here's why we need to enable your product to be sold through the channel. Here's why we need to simplify some of your messaging, because all my core sellers around the globe might not know your technology in and out. So if we simplify it, they can go talk to their Install base that's 70, you know, 70 companies deep. You know, we need to simplify the message and positioning so you know our marketing team can articulate what the value is when they're doing different marketing events instead of just talking about potentially core-based, risk-based vulnerability management. So that Y CAP is everything. Because once they see, like, wow, we're on the same team, he or she is helping me as a leader deliver my results. And even though this person is not my direct boss. I want those results that they're describing. And if I do A, B, C, and D like they're recommending. And again, you have to have credibility. You have to been able to have done it before. You have to follow up and do the action items and show them execution. Then they follow you. Then the journey becomes really simple. And I don't, I honestly do not care who reports to me on an org chart. I say it all the time. I'm going to get out of those individuals that don't report to me what I need to be successful to make them successful, to make me successful. And the most important thing to make tenable successful, right? Company comes first, your people come second, yourself come third. You want to make sure that you're bringing those people and explaining the why as you you know work with them very very closely. But M and A is a perfect example where influential leadership
2: comes to play. I see it. Uh, you know, I, I've read it this way. I feel it in my bones too. Is that greatest leaders I've ever seen are the ones that really focus on validating conviction versus compliance if you are a yeah. leader that you're you need command and control because you lead through compliance versus you have influential leadership and you're leading through conviction you yeah. can you can just feel it in your bones and i i really feel like in today's environments that are out there those are the leaders that are really really excelling right now
1: well we had some great insights here from some of the best in the industry we were really happy to feature them on revenue builders Thanks again to all our listeners for listening to another episode of The Revenue Builders.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.